The text for this morning's message will be found in the book of Romans in chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we continue on in our exposition of Romans, we're going to read verse 6 through verse 18. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through verse 18. Of course, we know and we are familiar that this is Paul writing to the church at Rome, instructing them as the Holy Spirit lays upon his hearts the, uh, the words that they need to hear. And so we need to hear them this morning as well. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The Bible says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will He hardeneth. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we come to the time of preaching, I ask, Lord, that you would help us now in our our own hearts and our own minds. Remove the distractions that might be there. Remove any presuppositions we might bring to this passage. Teach us, Lord, as only you can. Lord, I pray that our hearts are good soil this morning. If there be any rocks, if there be any Weeds, as it were, Lord, please take those out as we receive the Word and let Your Spirit do a work in us that it might produce fruit in us. I ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes to the truths here and do the work that only You can do. I ask for grace as I speak. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've got a little bit of mixed feelings as I stand here today. Um, especially especially facing this kind of a text. On the one hand, I feel like I'm about to open one of those confetti cards that explodes. You've ever seen those? People open them and poof! There's so much here. This is such a a rich and deep subject that I'm a little bit hesitant to start opening some of these topics up just because of the depth. And on the other hand, I don't want to be like one of those mustard packets or ketchup packets. You know the ones you open wrong and then you try to squeeze it on your food and it does either one of three things, a little tiny stream that's useless, or it shoots the wrong way, or it just blah everywhere, right? And I could do that very easily in the sermon, either go the wrong way or not give enough information or just blah And you walk away saying, what did we just talk about? It's not that I'm not confident with the truth here. No, it's not the case. 
I believe this wholeheartedly. There's just so many angles and so many facets we could talk about uh, the subject matter. So many facets, so many angles, and listen, so many misunderstandings. So many misunderstandings of this text before us. It's almost too much for just a few sermons. And before we get in, I would encourage you to listen to not only the sermons, but the Wednesday night classes as we're going to start recording those. Because we're, we're, we're dealing with the subject matter as a whole. Uh, what other people might believe about some of these things said here as well as what we say on a Sunday morning. You can find that on the website or um, in the form of a podcast, both on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes podcast. So I would encourage you to, to listen, to get a full perspective of, of the things that we're talking about here. Um, and as we come to the text today, I would ask you to let God speak. Let's not bring any presuppositions to the text because that's pretty easy. We can come to the Bible, we can come to a verse, and we know what we want it to say. Let's not do that. Let's let the Bible speak. Let's let Him tell us what He means. And secondly, let's let Him be our guide. Jesus promises in John chapter 16 that when the Holy Spirit has come, He will guide you into all truth. He says later in John chapter 17 and verse 17, as he prays to his Father, Thy word is truth. The Holy Spirit is going to guide us into truth, and that truth is right here. He's going to guide us into what does the Bible say. The answers for any questions that we might have, the explanations for any seemingly difficulties that we might have, will be right here. Written for us, easy for us to read, easy for us to understand. So let's do that. The title for this sermon, the subject for this sermon is actually found right in the middle of verse 11. The purpose of God according to election. The purpose of God according to election. If we understand what that means, then we're going to get a picture of what the surrounding verses mean. Because they deal with this subject. And if we we understand why the Holy Spirit moves Paul to write this, it's going to help us greatly as he uses the examples that he does. And we must read it in context. Context of Romans, context of the Bible, to see what God means. I I have no doubt you've probably heard some of the terms used here before, or in explanation of this passage, terms like election, predestination, sovereignty of God, divine purpose, foreknowledge, on and on. I'm sure you've heard some of those things. And usually you've probably heard them from one certain camp and very aggressively used. And I want to say from the start, those are good terms. Don't be scared of the terms like election or sovereignty or predestination. Those are biblical terms. And we should use them and we should stand on them and be confident in them. We run into problems when we interpret them or apply them wrongly. And when it comes to any subject, whether it be what we're going to talk about this morning or any subject in the Bible, we want to know what the Bible says, right? 
I don't care what man says. We want to know what Bible says. I care little to none about being labeled an Arminian, a Pelagian, a semi-Pelagian, or a Calvinist. You don't need to know what those means. There's no test. But just know that these things are out there. I don't care about being labeled one of that. What I care very much about is being biblical. Biblical in my theology. Biblical in my handling of the Bible. What does God say? Not what does man say that God says. Commentaries, books, have led many people away from precious truth. Not to say they're not of any use. But especially in this area, some writers are more famous than Jesus. Some people... And their opinion is held higher than what the Word of God says, plainly. We don't want to do that. What does the Bible say, right? What does the Bible say? So let's keep that paramount. Let's keep that first and foremost, and we'll consider some things this morning. I want to consider three areas that I want to pull from the text. The sovereignty of God, the purpose of God, and the election of God. We're going to look at those three areas see what the Bible says. So let's start with the sovereignty of God. Now listen, you could break out a concordance and you can search in that concordance. You're not going to find that word. You won't find it in the King James Version. You won't find it in the New King James Version. You'll probably only find it about three times in the English Standard Version. Closest we come uh, to, to that in, in the English translation is the word potentate used in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 6 or 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's the closest one, but don't worry about that. There's also another big word that's not in Scripture, Trinity. It doesn't mean the concept's not there. No, the concept is there. In fact, it's all over Scripture. It's really expressed clearly when you hear a simple phrase that's used hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times. The Lord God. The Lord God said. The Lord God did this. The Lord the high and lifted up one, the great I am, who is God. That speaks to His sovereignty. That speaks to His office. That speaks to His attributes and His privileges. Sovereignty means the absolute right to rule and to reign. It means the absolute right and power to exercise that rule. And the one who possesses that authority, the one who possesses that power, is the sovereign one. The sovereign has the absolute right to be king, to be a king, and he is king. You understand what I'm saying? We have sovereign nations, right? The United States of America is a sovereign nation. We don't answer to any other nation. We rule ourselves. We have that right built into our constitution, and we have the authority to rule the nation as we see fit. We believe each church is sovereign, right? We don't answer to any kind of man-made authority, though we might be part of an association. It's really a fellowship. But each church is responsible for her own governance and her own affairs. The only one we answer to a church is at to a church. The only one we answer to as a church is God. Other than that, we are a sovereign church. You're familiar with this concept. But above and beyond either one of those examples, God is sovereign. It is a privilege or a right of His attributes. 
This might not make sense, but that order is important. It's very important, especially when you start talking about um, things like election and, and, and when it comes to that. God is, that is one of His attributes, right? He is the great I Am. His name is Yahweh, I Am. And because He is, He is sovereign. God is holy, the Bible declares. God is holy. And because He is only and uniquely holy as He is, His sovereignty is always right. Every choice He makes is always right. His decisions are always right. He doesn't exist because He is sovereign. He is not holy because He is sovereign. Because He is and because He is holy, sovereignty alone is His. That may not mean much to you, but it's pretty important. If we were to put it in layman terms, God is God and He can do what He wants. God is God. He can do whatever He wants, period. And you and I have zero room to talk back. We have zero room to question. In fact, you get a really good taste of it here in verse 15 of the text. For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor him of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, For this reason, or for this same purpose, have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout the, all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed... Say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now listen, if you're honest, hearing those verses and reading those verses, you're going to have one of two reactions. The first one is either going to be, Amen, or the second is going to be, I don't like that. That sounds mean. That hurts my feelings. By the way, the right reaction is number one. Amen. God is sovereign. God is God. Who are we to reply against Him? The problem is there's such a soft, even degrading or blasphemous view of God prevalent today. God's my buddy. He's my bank. He's the success maker, the wealth giver. What he, is, what he exists for is to give me stuff. He exists to promote me. To make me healthy. To make me happy. To make me wealthy. Wrong. Dead wrong. God's goal is not to promote you. God is. All glory and all honor is due to Him and Him alone. We are created by Him and we exist to worship and glorify and promote Him. That is our purpose as mankind. The problem is, in today's mainstream Christianity, the roles have been flipped. We are God. We are making demands. We are telling Him what to do. And that is not what the Bible says. No. He is God and He has a sovereign right to do as He pleases. There's many examples we could go to in Scripture because it's all over. But just a few come to mind. How about creation? How about verse 1 of the book? In the beginning, who? 
God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because he wanted to. Why did he do it the way he did? Because he wanted to. Because he's God. Why don't we live in outer space? Why don't we live on the surface of the sun? Because God made it the way he saw fit in his sovereign right and his sovereign rule. He says, light be and light was. Land be and land was. Sky be. Cows be. Birds be. And they all were. Because the sovereign declares it and we obey. I wonder if any of the angels asked him, you know, I think birds would be better in the ocean and fish would be better in the sea. It just makes better sense to me. No, it's not how it works. Birds belong in the air. Fish belong in the sea because God said so. He said, man be and man was. We are created by Him. By the way, you see the same power in Jesus. Jesus says He's on the boat and the storm is raging on the Sea of Galilee and the boat is sinking and the disciples are scared. He awakes from sleep. He stands on the bow and what does He say? Peace, be still. And the storm doesn't slowly drizzle away. Immediately there is calm. The waves are flat. The clouds are gone. Why? Because the Sovereign One speaks. And creation listens. Every time He heals a blind man, there is new eyes created in that head. Every time He heals a deaf man, new eardrums are made. Every time He casts out a demon, the demons immediately leave. They obey because the Sovereign One speaks. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Nebuchadnezzar gets it right. Nebuchadnezzar of all people has a greater grasp on theology and the sovereignty of God than most professing Christians today. Let me tell you what he says in Daniel chapter 4. And I believe he writes this with his own hand. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes into heaven and my understanding returned to me. Listen, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? He understands who God is. For time's sake, we won't go there, but Jeremiah in in chapter 18 has shown the example of a, a potter making a clay pot. And as he makes it, it says it was marred in the hand of the potter and he remade it. And God basically says, listen, I, I raise up nations, I put them down. Sometimes I intend to punish them, but they repent and so... I bring back that punishment or sometimes they deserve punishment so I send it. That's what I do because I'm God and I can. I do want you to see for your own eyes Isaiah 46. Turn there. Isaiah chapter 46. Probably 
one of, if not the most clear statements from God Himself on this, Isaiah 46. Sorry, guys. Isaiah 46, and look at verse 9, if you would. The Lord is speaking here. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. (laughs) I don't know if it's just me, but I love statements like that in the Bible. Because God's the only one that can say that. I'm God. There's nobody else. Look around. There's nobody like me. I'm Him. Verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. How much clearer can you get? God says, I am God. I tell you the things that haven't even happened yet. In fact, I purpose for those things to happen, and I will do what I want to do. God alone can say this because God alone is sovereign. I hope that just a little... Information we've given out can see that. Again, you could preach a whole sermon series on this. It's like the card that explodes. Why don't you start looking in Scripture? It's everywhere. But God can and will do as He pleases because God is God. I hope you understand that this morning. And the Bible is clear, as God Himself is clear, that God works for and toward a purpose. There is a goal in what God does. There is a reason in what God does. A purpose He has for us, one in which He receives all the glory and one that is sovereignly declared. So the question is, what is it? The second thing I want to notice this morning, what is the purpose of God? Now I'm pulling that phrase right from verse 11 of our text, right? The purpose of God according to election. I want to establish that God is God. He can do whatever He wants. And He has a purpose. What is the purpose of God? God has given His counsel and it will stand. It will be accomplished. So what is it? Again, so many places to go. But I believe the purpose of God is clear and it stretches from the beginning in Genesis to its ultimate and final fulfillment in Revelation. It is one that is ordained and set forth by God in His sovereignty. And to show it at least for this sermon and for time's sake, let's simply look at the book we're studying. Romans chapter 1. Turn there if you would. Romans chapter 1. What does Paul say here as he writes to this church? Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Verse 2. Which he had promised afore, by His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Separated under the the Gospel of God, which is what the Old Testament talks about. See, now the Gospel doesn't just become a New Testament thing. All the Holy Scriptures before speak of it. This is not a New Testament purpose. It's a biblical purpose. 
The Old Testament declares the gospel. The New Testament fulfills it. This is promised before in His prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That is the gospel in a few short verses, right? It's all about Christ and who He was and what He did on the cross. What He did while He was here. And the Old Testament promised that. Verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for His name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel which was promised in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New is a purpose of God for man that we might have faith in that gospel. And that gospel would produce in us fruit. Verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. The gospel is not just simply a good news that tells us the news and leaves us alone. No, it leads us to obedience to the faith. Not obedience in faith, obedience to the faith. The teachings of Christ. What He lays down in Scripture. He says the Gospel is for that. Not only for our salvation, but to draw us close to Him. For obedience. And in that, He says in verse 6, in that ye are the called, the appointed, the chosen ones, called to be saints, which means holy ones. I don't know if it's clear to you, but it's clear to me. It's right there, the purpose of God. One that is promised in the Old Testament. One that is worked out in shadows and types, but ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. God's sovereign plan is known to us. That is His purpose. God has purposed to redeem sinners. The promise was given in the garden, wasn't it? That Christ would crush the head of Satan. It was worked out through all of the types and the shadows of the sacrifices, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. It means they spoke to this. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. You understand? This is the sacrifice that God has provided. Witnessed to, told about in the Old Testament, promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled when Christ came. And set forth for us now to look back in faith to know that Christ is the one who died for sins. God set Him forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God has purposed to redeem sinners. And this purpose of redemption stretches through the Bible, fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus. Sin and death are defeated by His blood and by His resurrection, and forgiveness of sin and eternal life is offered to those who place their faith in His sacrifice. 
That is the purpose of God. That is biblical. Remember, Paul says it was promised before. This isn't just something new that God came up with. The whole of the Bible points to it. And amazing and as wonderful as that is, what does it say in Romans 1.5? By whom? By Christ, by His sacrifice, we have received grace and apostleship. Now listen, I believe the apostles ended with Paul. There are no modern day apostles. But this word means a sending forth. Do you and I have a sending forth? Sure we do. It's called the Great Commission. It's instructions given to His church. We have a job to do. Not only a sending forth, but obedience to the faith among His nation, among the nations. Romans 5 says, God commends His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified, justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Romans 6 and verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You shall obey it in the lust thereof. Yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, there is more than just salvation. Yes, we are saved by His sacrifice. Saved by His blood on that cross. But He calls us to imitate and to walk and to live in His life now, right? Shall we continue in sin now that we've been saved? And you say, oh, I've been saved by grace? No. We are to yield ourselves by baptism to Him to walk a new life as part of His body. To put that old man down in baptism and to live a new life as part of His church. Christ showed us this when He Himself was baptized. Didn't He tell John, Let's do this because it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. And then to follow Him in a covenant relationship with Him in His local church. Listen, Jesus did many things while He was here, but what He did is He established, He instructed, and He empowered the New Testament church to be led by, filled by His Spirit, to walk with Him as Romans 7 and 8 says. That's the call of God, not only to be saved, but to follow. We are called to follow Him. Listen, the Old, Testament, the Old Testament might have had a different method. We don't serve under the law today. But the call is the same. What does He tell Abraham? Get up and follow Me. What does He tell Israel at the Mount Sinai as they've been taken out of Egypt? Follow Me. Walk in My covenants. Walk in My statutes. What does He say to the disciples when He calls them? Come, follow Me. The call of God is the same. To walk with Him. To be in a relationship with Him. To serve Him. To be faithful to Him. 
And the Great Commission makes His sovereign purpose crystal clear. Go in my authority, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all things I have commanded you. That is what I see as God's purpose that stretches through Scripture. To redeem sinners, to call them to Himself in a relationship with Him, to walk with Him and experience His blessings as a part of that relationship. Whether it be Israel in the Old Testament or the church today in the New Testament time, the purpose is the same. Declared by His sovereignty. That is the way. There is one way for salvation. There is one way for fellowship. Sovereignly set forth by God, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. That is His purpose for us, and that is what He decrees and points to in His Word. Everyone with me so far? We understand that? Do we see that? Okay. So what about the last part? The purpose of God according to election. Election means choosing. You should know that. We have elections in our land where we vote for presidents or representatives or whatever. It means to choose. Or to select. So the big question is, who are the elect? Who are the chosen? Who are the predestined, as it says in other places? You've probably heard this passage or similar passages. Some even we'll touch on here in just a couple minutes. Explained this way. The elect are the saved. God chose them. In eternity past, God, according to His good pleasure and His will and in His sovereignty, chose those who would be saved. He predestined them to be saved. And because that is His purpose, nothing will stop that purpose. He will save those whom He chose. He died on the cross for them. And when it comes time, He works a work of irresistible grace in them and saves them. This is not by any power, any choice, any effort of their own, God does it. In this, He alone gets glory. Because it has nothing to do with man. And those whom He did not choose, those who are not the elect, have no hope and no chance of salvation because they are not chosen to be saved. I mean, is that what it says? Is that who he's talking about? Is that God's purpose? To choose some to save and the rest to go to hell. Let me ask this question. When we study the Bible, what is king? Say it louder. Context. Context is king. If there's two phrases you should get from me in my time of pastorate, figure out what therefore is, therefore, and context is king. Context is king. The Bible is written in an order. Paul writes in an order in the book of Romans for a reason. 
Context is king. And this thought in Romans 9 actually kind of starts in a previous chapter. It starts in Romans 8. So turn there. Turn to Romans 8. Probably just a couple pages over. Let's see if we can get this context for what he's speaking of here, okay? Understand, we've, we've spent a couple years in this book already. We should know the, 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 the flow of it. He's already dealt with salvation in chapters 1 through 5. A very thorough explanation of what God does in salvation. He's already talked about baptism and the new life in Romans chapter 6. He's already written about the struggle of the flesh versus the Spirit and the power of the Spirit working in us in chapter 7 and chapter 8. We already see from chapter 1, he's writing to those who are obedient, holy ones, ones who have followed and are obedient to the faith, part of his church. Let's pick it up in verse 12, Romans 8, 12. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We spent some time on this several months ago. Listen, we can be a child of God and either follow or not follow the Spirit's leading, right? And we know when we don't follow His leading, we are disobedient. We miss out on blessings. But when we follow His leading, we understand that relationship we have with Him, right? We experience the blessings. We experience the closeness. Then, they that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's talking to people that know Christ, are in a relationship with Him, and should be following Him, right? Living for Him, even if it means suffering but following the leading of His Spirit. And He goes on. Let's pick it up in verse 27. And He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because He maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is is interceding for His people, for His saints. Even when it's in words we can't express, the the, the Spirit is, is taking those words and taking those feelings and communicating them to God on behalf of us, even in our sufferings. And we know that all things, verse 28, work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. The called. He's talking to the called. He's he's writing to the called about living after the Spirit. Giving them encouragement. Understand God is working for you. Even when when the suffering doesn't seem worthy. When the suffering seems like it's worse than any promise. He says, hold on. The glory which is coming is not worthy to be compared with the sufferings we have right now. The Spirit knows. He understands. He is hearing your prayers. All things are working together for your good. To them who are called according to His purpose. And we already have seen His purpose is more than salvation, right? We just spent a couple minutes on that. Okay. Verse 29. For whom He did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknown? Predestinate? 
Does this mean he knew some and predestined some to be saved? Is that what it says? What does it say he predestined them to? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now get your Bibles ready. We're going to turn a couple places. John 17. One of the greatest sounds for a preacher is that sound going on right now. The rustling of gilded pages. To know that we're looking together in God's Word. I want the Word to be clear, not my words. Who is conformed to His image? Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, praying to the Father. And I want you to notice what He says in verse 20. John 17, 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but also for them which shall believe on Me through their word, that they all may be one as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory... Which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. The glory which God has given Christ, he gave to who? His disciples, the church. The church has been given the glory of God. Now you understand, there were other disciples other than the twelve that believed. But they weren't with Christ. They had left in John chapter 6. Therefore many believed on Him, walked with Him no longer, saying, Who can hear this? This is too hard for us. Enough that Jesus even turns to the twelve and says, Will you also go away? And what do they say? Where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There were other believers, but it is His disciples who followed Him, who stayed with Him. He says, I've given my glory to them. And not only them, the ones who will believe on the word which they will speak. As we see it worked out in the book of Acts. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over there. I pray this is making sense. I pray the Spirit is helping us to understand. Predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Is that all the saved people or who is that talking about? Well, the church has been given the glory of God. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. What does he tell them in chapter 3 and verse 18? But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are changed. We are being made conformed to His image. As we behold His Word, as the Spirit works through His Word to change us, we as His body are being made more like Him. I believe the ones He says are predestined to be conformed to the image of of Christ are those who follow Him in the church. But it says He foreknew them and He predestined them. Right? Right? The clearest answer I can give to that, and we, I, I hope it's clear to you, is to simply read what the Word says. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to have to move fast. Time is, time is slipping away. Who is foreknown by God? Who has been predestined? Who has been elected by God? Let's see. 
Paul writing in Ephesus, writing to Ephesus in chapter 1. Just stay with me now. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, to the saints, to the holy ones, the ones who are following, to the saints at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Is every saved person you know faithful? You know some saved people who have walked away? You know some saved people who when you ask them to join the church say, no way, I'm not doing that, that's old school. Or somebody in church, people in church are hypocrites. You hear it all, right? Just because you're saved, you're not automatically faithful. But those who follow, those who are obedient, those who follow God's purpose, they are, right? Those who answer the call to follow me are followers of Christ. To the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Track with me now, we're going to move. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, us, the saints, the faithful. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as He hath chosen us, not you, us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will." according to His good pleasure with the, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of His glory. Verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints." What is his, the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. If you haven't been reading, read now. Verse 22, And hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. What is the ultimate goal? What is the ultimate working that He has predestined? All things brought together in Christ, who is over the church, the fullness of Him. And He writes to the church and says, we have been predestined to that. 
to be the fullness of Him, to receive the inheritance, to understand what it is that He would give us and how He would work. And that in chapter 3, it says the mystery of the, the will would be made known through the church. Now listen, God certainly knows who will be saved. God knows who, he, who will be faithful. If He doesn't, He's not God. And yes, as we'll talk about next week, He might even call some to a higher calling like pastors. But beloved, I don't believe He's talking about the individual in these verses. I believe He's talking about His people, His plan, His purpose that was foreknown. He knew in eternity past He would provide redemption through Christ. He would provide relationship through Israel and in New Testament the church. And this is how you will be conformed to my image. This is who will be conformed to my image. This is my plan. You know what? In Exodus chapter 3, let me read you what he says. Exodus chapter 3, he says this. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now listen. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people that is in the earth. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I've brought you out. You want to be a special people, which is what I want, and this is why I brought you out, then you will follow my plan. You will follow my covenant. That was the goal of His working in Exodus, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And when Christ came, He says the same thing. Peter uses this thousands and thousands of years later to describe the church. Ye are a chosen generation, a peculiar people, a holy nation. Why? Because we have followed God's plan. The church is foreknown. The church is predestined. His people, His plan for them. One that was foreknown before the world began. Christ is called the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And it says His blood not only bought redemption, but in Acts chapter 20, He says His blood bought the church. His blood bought forgiveness. His blood bought relation. His blood bought covenant. That is the foreknown purpose of God. Now back in Romans 8, quickly. I don't want to rush. I don't. Romans 8, verse 29. The verse that people say turns them into Calvinists. To me, it gives me rock-solid faith in the plan of God. We know all things work together for good to them that love God, according to them who are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, verse 30, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And in whom he, and whom he called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Listen, God has a foreknown purpose and a foreknown plan. These shall be My people. These are who will experience My blessings. These are who will walk with Me. And then He calls. And those who answer the call are justified. And those who are justified are glorified. That's the plan of God. God calls His church. God justifies His church. And God will glorify His church. No doubt about it, that's His sovereign plan. And He will accomplish His purpose. 
There is not one faithful member of His church that will not be glorified to the fullest extent. There is not one faithful member of His church that hasn't been fully justified by God. And there is not one member of His faithful people that hasn't been called by God. That's a rock-solid faith in God's plan. I know if I follow it, I am walking in His sovereign, foreknown purpose. Or you can take this as into the individual and pray to God you're one of them. I think God's plan was foreknown. His purpose was foreknown. And He sovereignly makes it known. You want to be with me? You want to walk with me? This is how it's done. And if you walk with me, and if you follow my call, I will justify you and I will glorify you. And it's going to be better than any suffering that's here. All things are going to work together because you're the called according to my purpose. We are His chosen ones. It is His sovereign purpose according to election. If God be for us, who can be against us? We are His chosen one. We are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all the church. I believe the elect, the chosen ones, are God's people, His church. The fundamental flaw in most of today's theology is to ignore this and to apply all of God's working and all of God's plan to the individual, not to His people. When the Bible is clear in God's plan and purpose for Israel in the Old Testament, they are called the elect. Israel, my elect, the Scripture says in the Old Testament. As it is the church today. That is what I see within the context of Romans. Paul has already explained that in Romans 8. So when he says it in Romans 9, he's referencing something. He's referencing being part of God's people and what it means. And yes, some responsibilities that come with it. Let me finish this. (laughs) I hope that's been clear. I hope that you see it. What makes it so glorious and so wonderful and, is, and so inviting is that God in His sovereignty and declaring His purpose according to the election also says this, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth. I understood that when I was in fifth grade. Whosoever means anyone. Whoever believes will be saved. Not those who have no choice. God will have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. In the end of the Bible, it says this, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! Let him that heareth say, Come! Let him who is thirsty, Come! And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And the church says, and the church is told to go and make disciples. Bring them in. That's God's plan. And those who follow the plan, those who are obedient to the plan, are the elect. Now listen. He draws to it. We don't come up with this by ourselves. He draws us to salvation. Until the Spirit opens our eyes to our sinful condition, we know nothing of it. But as He does, He shows us Christ that has been crucified, slain for our sins if we would place faith in Him. 
He opens our eyes to giving our life to Him by baptism and living as part of His people. And then to live in that power each and every day. Living like Christ. And I would simply, simply stop and ask, are you? Are you this morning as part of God's people living in His power? Can people see that you are one of the chosen ones? One of the elect of God? Or do they wonder if you even go to church? Do they wonder if I even go to church? Can we be like Abraham, which makes some wrong choices and gets impatient and screws things up? Can we be like Esau that wants things of the world more rather than the birthright of God? Or can we be like Pharaoh who takes a hard heart? And all of them face consequences for that, which we'll see next week. I hope that you, I hope that I, am living in this reality. That it would hit home how blessed we are to be part of His people. That the eyes of our understanding would be open to the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory, all of this that He's promised in Scripture. That's His purpose for us. And so many try to go around it, so many try to alter it, but in His sovereignty, He has chosen this. And beloved, He wants it for you. He wants it for each and every one of you. To be saved, to give your life to Him, to commit to Him as part of His local New Testament church, and to live for Him and bring all those people that you know in. And to look forward to an eternity of glory with Him. That's His purpose according to election. That is, if we will submit and obey. If we will follow. And so I simply ask this morning, are you following? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for all that you have done, the clarity with which you've given us your purpose, and and you write it so that we can see, and you write it so that we can understand, Lord. I thank you for the, the ways you've worked in my life, and each one's life here that you've drawn us to you and drawn us to the Savior and that you've shown us the importance of being part of your people, Lord. I pray that you would open all of our eyes to that, the reality of it, the wonder and the beauty of it, and that we would go from here living it, Lord. And if we're outside of that in any way, that we would simply submit to you and be faithful and follow you, Lord. I ask that you take these words that I have spoken, use them in the way that you see fit, work the work that only you can. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.